North Untapped is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Last fall saw the election of Italy's most far-right government since the Second World War. Giorgio Maloney, leader of the Brothers of Italy, a descendant of Benito Mussolini's National Fascist Party, led a right-wing coalition to election victory and assumed the prime ministership of that country. During her campaign, Maloney railed against the, quote, LGBT lobby and gender ideology and also targeted Muslims and immigrants. However, she also reportedly softened her anti-abortion rhetoric and her party's traditionally anti-EU stance. Documents recently obtained by the Maple show that following Maloney's election success, Canada's foreign ministry monitored congratulatory remarks from far-right leaders in Europe and statements of concern from some allied officials. Ultimately, however, the Trudeau government appears to have been reassured by Maloney's promises to maintain the status quo on key international partnerships. In a congratulatory statement that drew much criticism, Trudeau's office said, quote, Our two countries are partners on the world stage. The statement emphasised Canada and Italy's shared membership of the G7, G20 and NATO, and promised to work together on, quote, transatlantic security threats and challenges. Last November, Peter Smith, a writer with the Canada Anti-Hate Network, explained, While many world leaders have received similar accolades as the Italian Prime Minister from Trudeau's office, not all get the same kudos. The PMO does not issue these edicts for every election. Leaders not to receive congratulations include Hungarian leader Viktor Orban and Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki. Smith continued, A standard, banal, diplomatic cable for a fellow NATO partner and ally is not controversial. It comes, however, as Europe and the world are seeing an increase in populist, far-right parties rising to legitimate seats of power, often running under a banner of overt racism and anti-LGBTQ plus policies. I'm Alex Koch, Managing Editor of The Maple, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Peter to discuss the rise of Maloney and Canada's response. Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Before we get into this, let's let's talk about who Maloney is and what her politics are. Um, she's been variously described as, you know, far right, post-fascist, <laughs> or sometimes without the qualifier post, some people call her a fascist. So can you give us a brief outline of her political career and explain to us whether you think it is accurate to use this label fascist to her and her party? So the kind of the kind of 10,000 feet overview is for a lot of people outside of the country, Maloney is a very new name in global politics. She's been an extreme inside of the country. She's been an extremely active individual and now obviously successful figure in Italian far right politics, um, something she's participated in since she was a young adult. She was identified or certainly put herself forward as a young woman, as someone very capable and willing to lead. Um, And the question of if she is a fascist is an interesting one. And there's benefits, I think, in kind of tracing her development and the development of the various parties that she's belonged to. Um, Like you said, a lot of English language coverage uses the phrase post-fascist or neo-fascist. And I don't think these are as wide off the mark as perhaps we would like. Um, the, certainly the historic ties of the current party she belongs to are, are undeniable. So in Italy, as the Second World War was ending, Benito Mussolini would eventually be captured, attempting to flee to Switzerland. Um, but in Italy, there was never quite the same reckoning with the political and government leaders like there was in Germany. So even though El Duce met his kind of grisly end, being hanged upside down, many of the, the ministers and you know kind of movers and shakers within his government 
went on to form the Movimento Sociale Italiano, or the Italian Social Movement. And like this included Mussolini's former chief of staff. And so the MSI had some electoral success in the 1960s when it became the fourth largest political party, but was never really able to grow beyond that. You know, to jump ahead significantly in 1995, they rebranded into the national the Nationalist Alliance and presented a much more moderate image. You know, quite notably, um, they used the the symbol that is still used by the Brotherhood now. It's this the tricolor flame of Italy, um, which was almost also the MSI symbol. Um, and it has come to be seen as kind of a, a signifier of the far right in Italy. You know, moving forward again, Maloney was serving as a volunteer and then became a, the youngest ever vice president of the Nationalist Alliance in 2006. And then jumping ahead again, like various political reshuffling, the, the alliance was absorbed into one political party and then broke away again, which is where they formed the Brothers of Italy. So in the most recent election last year, the party surged ahead of the previously more popular right wing Forza Italia and Lega Party, which are her main partners right now in this, this right wing coalition or the right wing alliance that now forms the government. And this was this she came to power after the last prime minister Draghi resigned in July 2022. Um, he stayed on as kind of a caretaker for a while, but it, it's not unusual for there to be changing governments in Italian electoral, electoral politics. It's, it's really common. They've had a huge amount of governments over a very short amount of time. So like the question of, is she a fascist? Like on the face, I would generally say, say no, but with a, a pretty big asterisk. Since its founding, the brothers and its membership have expressed numerous views that align with the radical and the far right, including opposing marriage equality and adoption by the LGBTQ community, other members have been exposed as having really blatant fascist sympathies. Like quite notably, there was a, a documentary with a guy who had a bust of Mussolini sitting in his room. Um, you know, some of these, some of these very kind of uh, polemic figures or divisive figures, they're they're ejected from the party, but not in all cases. I think there was one representative who got caught throwing like Roman salutes. It's not fascist in the sense that it it does accept democratic rule. They accept the rule of law. It's not anti-system, but there certainly are elements that embrace that fascist past. And you know, the concern is always if you gain more power in government, um, you know, how do you then continue to empower yourself? That's super interesting. I mean, and in Italy and and Germany as well, they're in this fairly unique position where they did have ruling literal fascist and Nazi regimes, and so the descendants of that are always going to have that you know historical baggage that far right movements in other countries may not have. Um, so it is interesting how this kind of you know overbears on far right politics in these kinds of contexts. But as you noted in your piece, like the the Brothers of Italy and its offerings to the electorate, it fits in with a kind of broader trend of right-wing populist movements that we've seen in Europe and North America in recent years. Um, so maybe could you outline some of its shared characteristics with that broader phenomenon, and then maybe also some of its distinguishing features too? The Brothers is definitely a populist radical right party, meaning it embraced, at least on the surface, the ideals of democracy, while still containing very hardline elements that focus on heavily um, traditional ideas of national identity. Uh, it's important to stress that it's not a center-right party that's easily comparable to our conservatives. You know, this is a staunchly anti-immigration. As you said, they've, they've espoused very Islamophobic statements before, anti-LGBTQ, and very rigid when it comes to its idea of the family unit. Like you said, Maloney herself has kind of softened her own rhetoric. And, you know, the, the policies that have kind of come forward for the most part have not been too controversial. There was, there was some issues with uh, 
a protest law that critics felt was overly broad. Um, her statements towards refugees and, and immigrants is obviously highly problematic. Maloney herself has compared the brothers to the Republicans in the U.S., which is not not entirely inaccurate, I think, based on immigration. But as you were talking about, the history and the cultural elements of that can be very different. Um, She's much closer, I think, to Viktor Orban or even uh, Poland's prime minister, who she has a very close relationship with. And she's obviously not afraid to be associated with the far right. Before coming to office, I think a year last year, she spoke in front of the the very far right Spain, Spanish Fox Party. And they're also in, a, in an alliance with two fairly far to the right Italian political parties within their alliance. It, it is interesting as well. These There's these like different dynamics within uh, the, the coalition that Maloney won with, especially looming large is this issue of, you know, foreign policy. Uh, I believe Silvio Berlusconi has had, you know, fairly close ties to Vladimir Putin in Russia, whereas um, the brothers have been quite supportive of, you know, the West's broad approach to the war in Ukraine. Uh, we'll get more into that. But can you give us a summary of the international response to Maloney's election win last fall? Like who was celebrating and who was offering more, you know, measured or even critical responses to that result? So a number of really notable European leaders and political figures kind of came out immediately after the election to congratulate Maloney and and the brothers as a whole. Poland is a, a really notable one, as I already mentioned, and their prime minister Maloney uh, even met very recently as she's on kind of a an international trip, and just before she went over to Ukraine to meet with Zelensky. Uh, The Polish leader and Maloney seem very politically aligned, more so even than elements within her own party. Um, You know, her kind of unabashed support for Ukraine and and the war against Russia um, has put her at odds with some people internally. Hungary's leader, Viktor Orban, as well, is a staunch supporter. He offered his congratulations on social media. Hungary's sitting government is extremely far to the right. Uh, even the current Hungarian opposition party until a few years ago, the Jobbik party, was considered to be further to the right than Orban. And then the the one in third, like it's a distant third, but they have overt connections to like uh, white nationalist street gangs that hold marches through Roma neighborhoods. In France, uh, it was an Eric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen both gave like glowing statements about the win, um, which is really contrast to, to Macron, who especially since the election, has gone really to the paint with Maloney over a number of issues, specifically refugees, and not always in ways that I think especially make France look particularly good. But he said after the election that he re- he respects Italy's democratic choice and that they need to find a way to work together, which I, I think is probably the most, um, yeah, the, just the most middle road statement you could make. In the US, Biden was silent to start. Um, he did express some concerns during, a, I think, a not fully public speech, but eventually did offer congratulations. Again, there were some EU politicians who made some kind of indirect comments about maintaining the values of the European Union overall. I think the EU understands that Maloney is not really in a position to play too rough with them right now. Well, she's both politically kind of in a precarious situation at home and Italy itself is quite financially vulnerable and like really relying on um, kind of COVID recovery packages from the EU at this time. Yeah. And then in in these documents that uh, that, that we obtained recently and that um, I, I shared with you before this recording, like we saw that Canada's foreign ministry you know, noted the fact that Maloney's election winning coalition, as I mentioned, included folks like Berlusconi, who pretty, pretty cozy with with Putin. I think he actually boasted of his personal friendship with 
Putin and Russia. Yeah, top top five friend, I think was one of the quotes. <laughs> Pretty unbelievable stuff. Um, and then there's Maloney, who has supported sanctions against Russia and supports the war effort in Ukraine. Like you mentioned, she was recently in Ukraine. And uh, I, I believe she didn't, she said there's it's not currently on the table that Italy will send jets. But broadly speaking, she supports this idea of sending uh, lethal aid to, to Ukraine. And as you mentioned, she's reportedly toned down her traditionally anti-EU stance, probably uh, largely because of the, the practicalities of that, like Italy can't really do without that support right now. So in terms of how the Trudeau government was kind of reading and interpreting this messaging, like how important do you think these overtures were to the Trudeau government when it was assessing its potential response to this new government in Italy? That is an interesting question, because I do think it's important to be pragmatic when we think about approaches to diplomacy, especially international relations. As is constantly pointed out, Italy is a trading partner, is a NATO member. Uh, Maloney was legitimately elected. All that being said, just to mean that we have to have a political relationship with Italy. But it doesn't mean that we can't be critical of allies when we're worried about them not reflecting our values. And I think here was a time perhaps we should have been. You know, Italy under Maloney will still be far from the worst state that Canada does business with. But Canada also does not publicly congratulate every allied leader. And why the government or PMO may choose to do this or not is a very legitimate topic of discussion and ultimately criticism. What I, I do find really interesting, probably the most interesting, was the internal comms that, that you sent me that show how these decisions are weighed beforehand, the factors that are important to the government, and ultimately, at least some of why they choose to go forward. Understanding these priorities can help shape our, you know, our understanding of how our government works, even if I think ultimately this is a, this is a misstep. We saw these EU leaders saying, like, we've got to respect human rights, we've got to protect migrants, we've got to protect LGBTQ plus folks from the forces of reaction such as they are. That doesn't mean that you'd be severing ties with with Italy. And I, I really doubt that like if, you know, there had been a statement to that effect that like, you know, Maloney's suddenly going to turn around and say, well, you know what, we're uh, we're not going to support Ukraine anymore, you know, for example. So it seems like this would have been, a, as you mentioned, a great opportunity to, to put out some kind of mild uh, pushback against what some of this government represents. Yeah, I think a good example of it just happened kind of today while we are recording. Um, it's obviously very different because the individual I'm about to speak about is a member of European Parliament and Maloney is a, a national leader. Um, but conservative leader Pierre Polliver made a very direct statement condemning uh, Christine Anderson from the Alternative for Germany, as well as, I guess, kind of like a backhanded admonishment. Maybe that's giving too much credit, but she met with a number of conservative MPs. The leaders claimed that they were unaware of her views, but you know the bulk of his statement was a pretty full-throated condemnation of Anderson. We wouldn't necessarily have been so so harsh towards a national leader, but um, it was a good example of how yeah we don't always need to play with kid clubs when it comes to diplomacy. And you mentioned as well that Biden kind of indirectly said, and you you wrote this in your article last November that you know he did talk about the importance of protecting democracy and human rights. Something I've seen, I've, I've obtained a lot of these kinds of uh, diplomatic cables that Canada gets when international events and uh, elections happen. And there is this very big deference to, well, let's wait to see what the US says first before we make our own, our own statement on this. And there is quite a contrast between how Biden issued this very mild, not like particularly like aggressive con uh, criticism or, or, or warning, I suppose, is a better way to put it, 
versus how Trudeau's statement, because we should emphasize it wasn't just a banal, you know, congratulatory statement, but it was it was saying, congratulations, you're the first female prime minister of Italy. It did seem to go a little above and beyond what we would normally see in these kinds of incidents. Yeah, it is true. Yeah, it's hard to unpack the specifics of that. Like, what are the priorities of the government? Like, with which that it, it felt that that was necessary or that um, it wouldn't draw this type of criticism, you know, looking at these cables, like understanding how that math works, you know, whether you agree with it or not. Like, I, I think that there is a really strong argument to say that, you know, now more than ever, we should be trying to encourage um, countries that are having a far, far right upswelling or a populist upswelling. Um, to continue to engage in the international community, to continue to um, work with Canada. But, you know, we have to be consistent in the way that we criticize and present things. You know, you know, a regressive politician who happens to be the first female prime minister is, is still an issue um, as much as that is a historic event for that country. So what do you see as some potential dangers of kind of giving these not just banal statements of congratulation, but these actually very warm welcomes to someone like Maloney. Like, is there a risk that this further legitimizes far-right movements in Europe and beyond? Yeah. And I think I think that is the core of like legitimate criticism, other than just the government should not speak to people um, on the far right at all, which obviously doesn't doesn't work in an international community. But I, I can't stress enough how much of a hardline element exists within this party. A lot of that concern is tempered in the short term by these domestic and kind of EU regional issues like the war, like COVID recovery. But I also don't want to be too optimistic about that. Like there has been a very swift rise of the far right in several regions of the continent and North America. You know, many examples of governments we've already discussed, Sweden as well, just saw perhaps the, the furthest right party in kind of their mainstream sphere make significant gains as far as influence. I'm not particularly worried here in Canada that we'll ever have a prime minister, Maxime Bernier, in my lifetime. But the Brothers of Italy had very similar returns in their first election um, to what the PPC, what the PPC saw in the last one. Um, you know, there is, we are in a, a real moment when there is um, momentum for populist ideals and, you know, far-right talking points, um, even blatant conspiracy theories are finding a footing in the mainstream discourse. There is a real risk with taking a kind of business as usual attitude when it comes to working with the far right. And uh, I, again, I can't stress enough how much I do think we need to maintain a close relationship with Italy. There is an increasing normalization of politics and parties spouting views that are aligned with the far and radical right across the West. And, and we need to find a way to oppose that wholeheartedly. It's a balancing act. And maybe it's a little, you know, too generous to say that, like, oh, well, you have to, you have to manage these international relations, which I think everybody understands, you know, like, whatever your ideological persuasion, just the practicalities of government is you have to deal with allies, but you can still offer this, I guess, very mild pushback at the very least. Um, to Yeah, I don't think there's any uh, confusion between the two. Like, I don't think that they are under any auspices that they are aligned domestically in the type of policies that they would like to act. But especially whereas the Trudeau government has made itself um, a staunch supporter of anti-racism, of, you know, progressive progressive politics, at the very least in, in its rhetoric, you know, it, it was a time to kind of potentially draw that line in the sand. 
um, at least when it comes to these these types of values. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Peter. That was a really uh, interesting conversation. Uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, do you want to let them know where they can go to, to follow your uh, analysis and your reporting on these really important issues? Yeah, most of the work that I do appears on antihate.ca, which is a site we cover the far right, the radical right, and organized uh, hate movements within Canada. Um, and whenever possible, the kind of global aspects of, of that networking. Great. Thank you very much, Peter. Great having you on. It was great to be here. North Untapped is a podcast brought to you by The Maple. To support our work, please go to readthemaple.com and press subscribe. Thank you for your support.